You're listening to ReachMD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Quinn, Professor of Medicine and Pathology at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He also holds adjunct appointments in the Molecular Microbiology and Immunology, Epidemiology, and International Health at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at the Johns Hopkins University. He is also head of the section of International HIV and AIDS and STDs in the Laboratory of Immunoregulation and Infectious Disease. He is currently the director of the Center for Global Health at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Today we'll be discussing the world's first 25-year struggle with the AIDS epidemic and what the future holds. Thank you, Dr. Quinn, for joining us. Pleasure to be here. What are your thoughts when you first look back on the last 25 years since the first case of AIDS was recognized? Well, 25 years ago, when the first few cases were being recognized in men who have sex with men, I think the medical field were startled by this new finding of an immunosuppressive disease and did not really foresee or forecast that 25 years later, this would have expanded to all countries of the world, that we would have 40 million people living with HIV and 40 million fatalities. No one could foresee that. And in retrospect, it's actually quite disheartening that we as a medical profession and society as a whole could not contain this disease, that it is a byproduct of human behavior and a virus that takes advantage of that behavior and spreads relentlessly throughout many, many individuals. Unfortunately, I think we all thought we would have a vaccine within the first few years of the epidemic, and here we are 25 years later with no vaccine. And nor do I anticipate we'll have one for another five, possibly 10 years. Where we have succeeded, and we have to look at our successes as well as our failures that I just outlined, Uh, the successes are that we have wonderful, really fantastic treatment for HIV-infected people. In our own country, there are supposedly almost 300,000 people who are unaware that they have HIV virus in their system. Even with all these wonderful drugs in our marvelous medical system, What can we do to stop this from happening? Well, it's clear that we do have to do something. And in fact, it led to a change in the recommendations of the CDC towards HIV testing. In order to get more people to know their HIV status and to get referred into care, the CDC has recommended routine HIV testing in all healthcare facilities and clinic venues. This is met with some criticism saying that It may bypass a lot of the counseling that's necessary when one does HIV testing, but it has the specific goal of just trying to identify more people who are infected for themselves so that they can take steps to prevent further spread to their loved ones as well as accessing treatment. The guidelines will try to shift that number that you indicated of people who don't even know they're infected. And the people should know, should be told they're going to be tested for HIV, just like they're told that they're going to be tested for syphilis or for hepatitis or for many other sexually transmitted diseases. And they have the option of refusing 
So no one is being forced into testing. So I think that needs to be very clear to everyone. No one is advocating forced testing. But the testing should be recommended to everyone who accesses health care. And if found to be positive, they should be intensely counseled. If they're found to be negative, they should be counseled so that they can prevent themselves from getting infected. I remember large companies in our community trying to get 100% of their employees to donate blood. Many of the employees practiced high-risk activities and were forced into giving blood. And on the disclosure, there was never any comment about, should your blood be discarded? This led to blood being collected that was really dangerous blood until somebody became aware that you should have a disclaimer that, yes, I'll give blood, but please don't use it. And this sounds much the same thing that's going on now, that you can opt out. Do you think that infants and pregnant women had something to do with this change in CDC's requirements or recommendations? Well, I think the most important justification for the change in the recommendations was that for the last eight years, 40,000 people become newly infected every single year in the United States, that nearly a third of all infected people do not know they're even infected in a country such as the United States, carrying a potentially lethal virus that could be unknowingly transmitted to a loved one. You know, when you look back over the years, you say to yourself, what are we doing wrong? Why are 40,000 people getting infected every year? Why do so many people don't even know they're infected? And I think that was the justification that brought health leaders together to say, how can we make a difference? How can we make a change? And they did look at the sort of routine testing that was being offered to pregnant women that were in prenatal care or in labor and delivery with rapid-based testing. So we had the technology to test people. We just didn't have a way of getting people to be offered the test in a very routine fashion. And the more routine you can make the test, the less stigmatizing it actually is because it's just considered a routine test. And every pregnant woman that should be going through prenatal care gets automatically tested for syphilis, automatically tested for gonorrhea and chlamydia for the health of the mother as well as for the fetus. And so the same should be that they should be tested for HIV. That was advocated, it was accepted, and it's been implemented. And up to 98% of pregnant women, I believe, are being tested routinely for HIV, and it, and it succeeds in preventing transmission of HIV because those infected women get access to treatment that prevents the virus from going from the mother to the infant. So I think the leaders saw all this and made the decision that we needed to adopt such a policy for the general population going into healthcare facilities for routine care. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Thomas Quinn, and we're discussing the AIDS epidemic. Well, we've touched on prevention in our country. Are there other things we can be doing as far as prevention here and in the third world countries, such as education, condoms, needle exchanges? These seem to be low-tech things that aren't being done. The more we can advocate for those, the more effective our prevention efforts will be. Clearly, this is a sexually transmitted disease, and so the 
standard across the globe should be ABC. Should be abstinence for those who can do that. B, be faithful for those within a relationship. And C, use of condoms for those in high-risk activities or to prevent transmission of the virus. Now, we've added a new C for the sexual transmitted ways, prevention, and that's circumcision. Circumcision trials were just completed and showed that men who are circumcised have a 50% less probability of getting infected. It reduces their risk by 50%, which is a profound effective rate, and it's lifelong in those individuals by the fact that the foreskin, which is the susceptible part of the penis for HIV, is physically removed. Now, that's a bit more high-tech, not too high-tech, but it nevertheless does require surgery and has complications. But it's a single prevention modality that needs to be scaled up now that the studies have been completed. And there is a hunt for women to have their own means of protecting themselves. And those studies, the microbicide studies, are underway, but we currently do not have a safe and effective microbicide to recommend. So that's the sexual modalities. Then you've got needle exchange programs to try and prevent injecting drug use. This has been shown to be highly successful in politically acceptable states that allow it. And when I say states, I'm including countries. And so if one goes to Switzerland or to Holland and Denmark and places where needle exchange programs have been in place for over 10 years, one sees the success record of those programs. Some programs do exist on needle exchange programs in the U.S., but they're limited and not endorsed by federal funding in any way. How would you respond to long-term treatment for herpes simplex in a woman as a way to cut down infection? Studies are underway to actually look at whether that will be effective. I actually hypothesize that it will be. And I don't think it just has to be for women. I think it's true for men as well. Any man or woman who has genital herpes, if they take a prophylaxis against a herpetic episode and it suppresses those episodes and they don't get the genital ulcers, then they don't have a breakdown in the skin or the mucosa allowing HIV to cross the barrier. So I actually do think that standard prophylaxis of people with genital herpes, men and women, would reduce their risk to acquiring HIV. Now, that's a personal statement. To make it backed by scientific data, there are numerous studies underway right now in thousands of people across the world actually testing that hypothesis. I would project within a year we will have an answer to that question. 95% of cases of HIV and deaths are in the sub-Sahara part of our world, and 40% of those cases are in young people. These are also people who have very low income, and only one out of five is actually getting treatment when they need it. What are we doing wrong, or what can we do more? So the situation in Africa and other developing countries is, is a question of economics and infrastructure. The people want to be treated, It's the cost of the treatment and the medical facilities to support the treatment, which years ago did not really exist. I think only three years ago in the whole continent of Africa, only about five to 10,000 people were accessing treatment, whereas nearly 90 
95% of all known HIV-infected people, people who knew their status and qualified in the United States for treatment, were accessing treatment. So how do we make a difference? Well, there are many different ways. The first is that we needed to reduce the price of the drugs, and UNAIDS and WHO led the way on that. Through lobbying efforts against pharma, they were able to lower the price of the drugs. Then generic forms of the drugs, antiretroviral drugs, started to be produced by India, South Africa, and other places, and in Brazil, and that started to also lower the price of these drugs. So that's the economy of of that had to come from pharma and from generic development. I want to thank Dr. Thomas Quinn, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing HIV AIDS epidemic in the world. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.